Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clearing Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is episode 31, State of Louisiana versus Greg Harris, a.k.a. Greg Thicklin. In February 2009, Chiquita Tate was found stabbed to death in her downtown Baton Rouge law office. Her short legal career was promising, including a recent $500,000 judgment in a personal injury case. Chiquita's criminal law practice was equally ambitious including an ongoing murder case. Ultimately, Chiquita's husband was linked to the crime through circumstantial evidence that included DNA found on sunglasses in his vehicle and mixed DNA on a bleach bottle found in the house in Baker he'd shared with his wife. We'll talk about the crime, investigation, and the clues that pointed at Harris and led to his arrest. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing this week? Pretty good. Pretty good. I had a a nice little week Uh, off last week. Um, I took it off to be able to spend uh, some time with my uncle who was visiting from Delaware. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want the pressure of trying to prepare a show. Right, absolutely. Over that weekend. So, so we took off. And since Mardi Gras this year is just Tuesday, you know, it's no big deal. We'll be here next week. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No big deal on the Mardi Gras thing. Uh, Real quick, of course, I want to welcome in our viewers on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, on the Clear and convincing pages on both. Um, definitely feel free to like, comment, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, got a little bit of a uh, got a little bit of an announcement. Um, we actually now have merchandise with the uh, clear and convincing logo. You can go to Cafe Press 
com slash clear and convincing and then put all this extra BS in there. But uh, once you arrive, you'll see a site that looks like this, and you'll see the wider range of, uh, in this case, uh, different types of shirts and all that good stuff that we have available on the site to uh, to order and support the show. That is really awesome. And are, is I'm there a plan to try to add additional merch? Like, I would love a coffee cup. Um, I think that we have the ability to add, like, coffee cups and things like that. I think you can even, uh, I think you can even get, like, uh, you know, clocks with the logo on it. So it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, that'll do. I was looking at it last night. It, it does. It looks really cool. Um, I will go Absolutely. definitely when I get paid next week. Probably going to order me a couple of long sleeve shirts. <laughs> uh oh. And, and a short sleeve one to wear out. Yeah. Hmm? If, uh, if you wear, live in Arkansas, you're definitely going to need them because uh, yeah, it's a little. It's going to be a little uh, cold the next couple of days. I don't think we're supposed to. Get above freezing again, Lisa, until Monday morning. I know. I saw that. Um, we're supposed to get it over the weekend as well, uh, but it's going to be in the 30s, probably just barely above freezing. But for people in the south, that is extremely cold. <laughs> yes, it is unbearably it is. cold. Because for people yes, in the south, absolutely. generally 60 is cold. Yeah. So we have thinner blood down here. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> or we're all just a bunch of weenies. <laughs> I mean, that's possible too. I mean, you can't even can't even lie about that. Uh huh. I uh, it, it's funny. My dad was from up north. My mom was from up north. Um, I work with two attorneys. One is from Pittsburgh, which is hella cold, and the other one is from uh, Massachusetts, Boston area, which is pretty mm-hmm. cold. Um, so for them, you know, this is like balmy weather. Oh, right. I, and I mean, so, I, you know, the difference between cold here and cold in, say, like when I lived in Jersey, oh, yeah, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah. Still, let me be yeah. cold. And then, uh, of course, if it snows, they're probably not going to understand to this day why Southerners can't deal with snow yeah. or drive in it. I'm, I'm pretty confident <laughs> that everything's going to shut down again for a couple days. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to get – we probably won't get that for another uh, – the last time was like 2007 or 2008. And it doesn't happen here very often at all. Hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, I think the reason why we're all kind of looking and paying attention to this one is at least in our area, it's supposed to be ice. So, you know, you don't want to mess with that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, they're so, saying you all know, right, it's not well, going to be anywhere near as bad as anything else we've experienced, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll it'll blow over because we were we were supposed to be getting bad weather, rain and all that stuff, and it hasn't happened. 
this whole week was supposed to be bad. You know, and we we haven't seen right. any rain or anything. So, all right, you ready to get on with the show? Let's do it. All right. Uh, all right, in this case, we're talking about uh, Chiquita Patrice Tate. She was born October 15, 1975. She was one of seven children uh, born to a single mother, father not in her life. Uh, they lived in a pretty rough part of Baton Rouge. Um, you know, she had a really rough, rough start. She... Her parents weren't in her life. She was raised by her grandparents. She spent time in foster care. But she was also always a very tenacious uh, person. And Mm -hmm. her grandfather used to tell her, with that mouth, you need to be a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And she, you know, she she still persevered uh, through everything. She graduated from high school probably sometime around 1993 uh, she went to school in Atlanta and finished her bachelor's degree in college which was she was the first person in her family to not only attend college but to graduate from college okay and then her early career she was teaching at a it was called Timbuktu Academy and it was at Um, Southern University in Baton Rouge Uh, she was probably she had a degree in English so she was probably teaching English grammar something along those lines although the focus in Timbuktu was science technology and math I believe Mm -hmm. Um, at some point she decided perhaps she wanted to change careers and she appeared at the office of a a Baton Rouge judge for an interview, but something went wrong and the judge didn't have time to do the interview. Chiquita didn't make a scene, didn't have a fit. She just asked if she could use the telephone. The judge said, sure, lock the door when you leave. And when the judge returned to her office, she found that Chiquita had straightened it up she had organized some things, and she had taken telephone messages. So Chiquita <laughs> ended up getting herself a job with this judge who was Judge Johnson, a a woman judge um, in the 19th Judicial District Court or City of Baton Rouge. I'm not real sure. The, the articles aren't entirely uh, a lot of detail about Uh who these people are. But Judge Johnson eventually became Chiquita's mentor. And Judge Johnson encouraged Chiquita to go to Southern University Law School, which is a very prestigious law school program. Uh, Two of the attorneys I worked with at my former firm went to Southern. And um, she graduated from law school. Uh, The timing... The time frame is not really that clear. It was probably in the early 2000s. Um, late 90s, maybe. Uh, she would have graduated high school in 93, which would have put her out of college, say, 97. 
law schools at least three years. So around that, you know, 2000, 2001 stage. Um, She passed the bar on the first try, which in Louisiana is not always how it happens. Usually people, uh, a lot of people get a conditional admission, but they have to take a part again. Mm-hmm. So Chiquita passed all parts of the bar exam on her first try. Hell yeah! Like I said, that's that is a an accomplishment. Um, Absolutely. And she was admitted to practice in Louisiana and assigned bar roll number two nine five zero six, which is what makes me think she was probably somewhere in the early two thousands. And uh, for our update show, I'll do a little bit more research. And um, I can give y'all an idea on our update show about when Chiquita was admitted to practice law in Louisiana. Um, okay. It appears that she had a pretty lucrative solo practice right out of the gate. Um, I don't find any, I haven't found any evidence that she was practicing in any of the big firms. It doesn't appear that she practiced with any of the plaintiff's firms or any of the defense firms, um, you know, personal injury defense firms. Um, So she appears to have been, and she handled a little bit of everything. She had probate. She had domestic. She had personal injury, uh, tort cases. She also handled criminal defense work. Um. And it was in 2007 that she met a guy by the name of Greg Harris, who was a carpenter, worked for a local construction firm. Apparently, the story goes that she and Harris were driving in Baton Rouge, and Harris cut her off in traffic. And so at the next light, she pulled up next to him and started berating him from the car. I think we learned in the previous case about the uh, New Orleans Saints player that that's probably not the uh, best thing to do. But yeah. Well, it's not a it's not the thing to do when you're a male and he's a male. But when yeah. you're it's a really female, right? You can usually get away with it, especially if you're dealing with a male. Touché. And Touché. um. So, and then, you know, her her practice continued, and sometime probably in late 2007 or, or 2008, um, she got a, she won that $500,000 bodily injury judgment, uh, which is an accomplishment. I work for, you know, plaintiff's personal injury, and I've worked for, you know, defense personal injury defense firms and most cases in Louisiana you know the minimum car insurance is $15,000 that's the minimum Mm -hmm. liability Um, so if you have 15 liability and 15 UM the most you're going to get is Um, $30,000 we very rarely see most attorneys in Louisiana won't go after personally because collecting personally is a nightmare. 
Okay. Um, now, I don't know what this case was. I don't know whether it was like a corporate defendant, uh, you know, a big rig truck or, or something like that. There's no detail to when the judgment was awarded or, or what the case was. Um, again, that's something I'm going to try and research for the update show in a couple weeks uh, to see if mm-hmm. I can identify the case that won and when it when it happened. Um, okay. And Greg Harris was born in Baker, raised in Baker, Louisiana, which is about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes outside Baton Rouge, north of Baton Rouge. Um, I, there's not a lot about his life. I mean, his parents, I think, were together, but I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know how many siblings. I know he has a brother and a sister because they have played a part in the case as well as subsequent media coverage of the case. Um, Mm -hmm. At some point, though, he was born Greg Ficklin. Okay. And when he was about 14 years old, he had a name change to Greg Harris. So Harris is and, the alias, and Ficklin is well, the Well, no, Har- this is the funny thing. Harris is the the became the real name. Ficklin mm-hmm. became an alias, and there was a reference in the bail hearing to basically that as Greg Harris, he was above board, clean as a whistle. As Greg Ficklin, mm-hmm. there was some form of criminal record. Right. Uh, now, it's not in East Baton Rouge Parish, because I looked in East Baton Rouge Parish and didn't find anything under Greg Ficklin. Um, he also had um, another criminal record as Greg Harris shortly before they he and Chiquita were engaged in about 2007. Um, mm-hmm. they were going to be married in 2008 about six weeks before they were scheduled to be married. There was a domestic violence incident at their home. Uh, he, Greg Harris was jealous. Greg Harris right. suspected every girl of cheating on him. He called them nasty. Mm-hmm. He, uh, was very demanding about how they kept the house, et cetera, et cetera. And when they didn't meet up to his standards, he became violent. And he's a big guy. He's over six feet right. tall, 200-plus pounds, uh, a weightlifter bodybuilder. Um, so he's got no business putting his hands I on mean, a woman. Chiquita was like 5'6", five, 5'7", five, uh, you know, maybe 130, 140 pounds. Right. Okay, he's got no business putting his hands on a woman ever. Um, no, police not. were summoned. Uh, both Greg and Shakita accused each accused the other of domestic violence, so they were both issued citations. Uh, Greg Harris, however, did not appear in court, mm-hmm. and so he had an outstanding warrant issued mm-hmm. against him. Um, They had a troubled marriage. I suspect, based on some of the things that um, came up about Greg, that 
he gave the appearance of this great success, a lot of money. He drove a Mercedes. But in reality, he was not the one footing the bills, and he was expecting the woman to foot the bills. Awesome. And he had he found the cash cow in Chiquita. Right. He would be in a relationship out of mon- for monetary reasons. Correct. And so, okay. you know, he was driving a Mercedes – uh, but his house in February 2009, the mortgage was delinquent, and he owned the house in Baker. Mm-hmm. In January 2009, uh, Chiquita rented herself an apartment. She was done with the marriage. She was done. She also, in early February, was moving her office to the State National Building. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, on a little bit of a tangent, we're going to talk about the Duhart brothers, Darius, Donato, okay. and Denard. Okay. Okay. Uh, Darius, Donato, and Denard do have somewhat extensive and checkered criminal histories in East Baton Rouge Parish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been involved in drugs. They've been accused in assaults. And at one point, Darius and Donato were in, were accused of killing and burning a guy. Daniel. And at the time Chiquita was murdered, she was representing, I believe, Darius in the murder mm-hmm. trial. Darius and Donato, okay. at the time Chiquita was murdered, were both being held pending their trials. Okay. Um. And then their brother, Denard, he has some semblance of a criminal history, but not – no assaults, no violent crimes that I could tell, mostly possession and drug-related um, crimes. He was also a witness in a case in which somebody tried to kill him, and he ended up trying – shooting at them, but he was apparently believed to be justified because he wasn't charged, but the other guy was. And he cooperated and and served as a witness in that case. So, you know, you can't really, um, you can't really say too much about him. And uh, he also, he had a degree from Southern University and was some sort of social worker, according to his obituary, because he died in 2013. Uh, Darius and Danako, while the murder charges fell apart when several witnesses were killed, uh-huh. uh, were shot to death, um, this was after Chiquita died, and the, now, the state eventually quick, had to drop those charges. Real quick, with the correlation with uh, Southern University, is it possible that Chiquita came across uh, the, uh, Denard before, you know, representing them? Or you know, were it's, they, it, it, it's entirely it's entirely possible that they could have their time at Southern could have overlapped. Although he would have been attending the university, the bachelor's mm-hmm. program, and she would have been in law school, which right. can often be two separate worlds. So they probably um, but they could possibly, and that could be how they became clients. Of Chiquitas. Okay. 
at you know when she hung out her shingle as an attorney. Okay. Um, and you know, and I and I got to say, you know, based on my experience, going out on her own the way she did, she she was something. Because most people, even if you only do it for a year or two, you practice at one of the big personal, the big plaintiff's firms. Down here, right. it's Morris Bart, Dudley DeBosier. Um, you know, you you practice, or you know somebody, you know an attorney. And he has you come into his office. Or you right. go practice with one of the big defense firms. Um, not a, a lot of the people that graduate law school and go out on their own and always stay on their own, they don't last very long because they're not very successful. Okay. Because a lot of times it's a lot of, you need a lot of networking to build up your practice before you go it on your own. Um, not to right. say that there aren't some people who have done it, but generally any one of those people, they started off, even if it was only six months, at somebody else's They started firm. off with somebody else. Right. Learning the ropes. Correct. And and really, when you start off and you don't have anything, you need somebody to fund your cases. You need mm-hmm. a salary. You need, um, you know, somebody to pay the expenses that that you're going to incur to mm-hmm. operate the practice. So, okay. um, so it was, you know, she was something else to be able to really go from the day she passed the bar, essentially, all on her own into her own practice At, with her own practice. Yeah, even if it was from her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the two hearts. Okay, so Darius and Danaco were in, in jail. Um, there's no evidence or no indication that the course of the criminal case was not going well for them. So there's nothing to suggest that either one of them would want a continuance and thus would engineer Shakita's downfall. Also, there's no right. indication that she wasn't doing a good job for, for Darius. I mean, granted, she was representing one, not both. She couldn't right. represent both. Uh, but she was representing Darius without, you know, without impacting Tanako's interests. And Denard was not implicated in, in the cases in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, on the 5th of February, um, Greg's mortgage was behind, and Mm -hmm. there was a potential that it was going to be put into foreclosure. Uh, At some point, Greg asked for an advance or a loan from his employer. He did not say, I'm having money trouble can you help me out? He told his boss that one of his brothers had been charged with murder, mm-hmm. which I believe, and this is just my opinion, my speculation, I believe that he was actually foreshadowing his own future condition. 
because I think that this was brewing because uh, Chiquita had taken out a $250,000 life insurance policy and Greg Harris was, if not the sole beneficiary, was a beneficiary of that very large policy. Right, absolutely. Um, There are some sources that say she named him and her sisters or her siblings. But there are other uh-huh. sources that say he was the sole beneficiary. Uh-huh. Um, so February 19th to February 20th, uh, Chiquita attended a hearing at the 19th Judicial District Court, and I believe that was on the Duhart ca- one of the Duhart cases. Uh-huh. She was interviewed by TV News. Unfortunately, the... Uh, the clips that they have shown with the various programs about the case have not really shown the entire interview. I wasn't able to find it when I was doing my research. Um, I would like to see what the entire interview is about. She's mentioning something that she thinks the prosecution should have and have turned over. And there is are some sources that say that she was actually working on a writ either to the First Circuit Court of Appeal or the Louisiana Supreme Court, whether it was in connection with the Duhart case or not, it's not really clear. She right. returned to her office. Um, she also apparently had a conversation with Judge Johnson that day um, that, sh- that Chiquita was thinking about starting a mentorship program to help at-risk youth. And she was also starting something, I believe, to help parents and children reunite after the children had been in foster care. Okay. So um, public service was something that was on on her mind on that last day. Uh, around 5.30 in the evening, her staff left. They'd been staining shelves and, and trying to get everything moved into the new office. Uh, her secretary, Lessie, uh, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce her name, and I, I, I hope she's not listening. Lessie oh. Hoofkin um, told her, you know, she said she had a, a little bit of work to do, a couple of hours, and then she was going to head home. Uh, Leslie told her, don't stay too long, because the fumes from the, the varnish or, or paint were, you know, pretty strong. Right. Um, and Chiquita had settled down to work in the office. She had her shoes off. She had little, you know, socks on. Um, at some point that evening, according to her husband, and this may be you know, uh, corroborated by her phone records, she contacted her husband, Greg, to bring her food. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, perhaps because he's a man and he's just dumb, he stops at McDonald's and Baker to buy Chiquita's food. It's like a 30, 40-minute drive. So Uh by the time he gets to Baton Rouge... The food is going to be cold. Yeah. The food is not going to be fit to eat. Now, 
there, if there's a microwave in the office, maybe they can reheat it. I don't know. Um, it would have made more sense to come to Baton Rouge, run through a drive through at McDonald's in Baton Rouge, and then go to the office. But, mm-hmm. you know, he's a man. Sometimes they just, their minds. Um, Chiquita did come downstairs and meet him because at 5.30 p.m., the State National Building goes on lockdown. Okay. And if you step outside after 5.30 p.m. and you don't have your access card, you are not getting back in. Mm. And I had this happen to me a couple of times when I worked at a building that locked down at 5.30. I was working late, went out, smoked a cigarette, forgot my card. And there was probably more go, <laughs> Yes, lots of them. Had to go next door to the rallies, had to borrow mm-hmm. their phone, and call the attorney that lived like two minutes from the office and have him come let me back in. <laughs> oh. Um, and he had to come from his house to let me back in. Um, he joked about getting a a uh, thing to wear around my neck so that I would always have the access card. Uh, another time, they were actually upstairs, so I was, just had to call upstairs on the night line and have somebody come downstairs and let me back in. So, And that was always the thing of everybody telling me to quit smoking. <laughs> That's a good reason. <laughs> so, but, uh, so Chiquita did. She met Greg at the door and let him in, took her food, um, she was a feisty girl, and if she had a problem with it being stone cold, words were probably had. Uh, so Greg was I hanging wanna, around. I want to interject yeah. something real quick, if you don't mind. So, mm-hmm. Greg here, you said this is all off of Greg's account, right? Correct. Like Greg's account of the correct. events, correct? So, here's my thing. If I'm Greg, why the Fuck. Why the hell would I want to make myself the last person that's seen Chiquita alive in my story? Because that automatically makes you a pretty good suspect to begin with. Because most criminals, even though they're dumb as a box of rocks, mm-hmm. in reality, they think they're smarter than everybody else. Okay. And they think that and 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 they probably think, why would I make myself the last person person to see her? That just doesn't make any sense. True. So, well, I'm gonna play devil's or not devil's advocate. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna freaking just mess with them with their minds and make them think. Well, if he admits it, there's no way. I forget what the term is. Reverse psychology. Yeah. Uh, Well, like I said, I I think he's, I I think he thought that he was smarter than the cops. And as long as he stuck to the story, but as we'll see, he didn't really stick to the story because the cops wouldn't let him. Um, But that's another, that's another Another topic. So he's hanging around the office, which I also really don't understand, unless 
my suspicion that this was his plan all along. He's just waiting for other people in the building to be gone. Mm -hmm. So he's hanging around trying to make himself useful. At some point she has, uh, Chiquita has a relative of a client coming by. And so Greg, to be helpful, goes downstairs and he either delivers a transcript or picks up money from that client. Or that client's family. They talk to the client. I'm not entirely sure. I think that portion was corroborated by police. Um, It's not a big part in in the evidence against Harris. So absolutely, I'm just I'm just you know they're they're what exactly is the you know, what is he saying is the timeline and what's the actual timeline, I guess, right. is what I'm trying to figure out. And he's he's not real he's not real sure on the timeline, okay? He can't establish a timeline. Um, because he doesn't really say what time he got there, although we know it had to have been after five thirty because the door was locked and Shakita had to come down and meet him. Right. Um we don't know what time the transcript was delivered or picked up for sure. What we do know is he was observed by other tenants coming into the building at 724. He was observed downstairs blocking the door open with a book. Mm-hmm. And telling those tenants to leave it there because he needs the door open. And then an hour later or 59 minutes later, we know his Mercedes was ticketed in the parking lot across the street for failure to pay. And that was at 8.23 p.m. Now, I listened to a really great podcast that I really enjoyed um, called Bless This Mess. And they did an episode about this case. And one of the things they were talking about, first of all, was Greg Harris having a warrant for a seatbelt violation. And um, the warrant was actually, I think, for the failure to appear at the the domestic violence case. But even if he did have a warrant, if you have a court date and you don't show up, even if it's for a ticket, they issue you a warrant, and what generally happens is when you're picked up on that warrant, you're brought to whatever court, you get whatever fine, you pay whatever fine, and then you're done. Right. But a lot of states do that. Louisiana is not the only state that when you fail to appear, a warrant is issued for your your arrest so that you're right. arrested and brought to court to take care of whatever that moving violation, traffic ticket, seatbelt ticket, misdemeanor charge, whatever it was. Now, as and for the, the parking way, lot, they sure, I'm sure if you uh, do I'm sure if you do FTA or fail to appear, I'm sure if you were planning on fighting that ticket, you probably won't any longer. At least you won't win. Well, generally well, actually, you know, generally you won't win if the officer is still available. But right. if the officer has left or died or become sick or just, you know, had a head injury and doesn't remember anything that he did, then uh, 
if you push for a trial, even with a failure to appear, you could theoretically, I mean, failure to appear actually does not hinder your chances of getting a trial if you want a trial. Really? Okay. No. It it really doesn't. It would be unconstitutional to well, deny yeah, a trial I mean, for failure to appear, basically. I'm just saying, you know, if somebody stood them up, they probably are less likely to uh, – or less inclined to believe their BS. I mean, I could be wrong on that. Well, I mean, look at Ira Einhorn. He he freaking left in the middle of his trial. He was convicted and sentenced in absentia. And then he got a whole new trial when he was caught and extradited back to the U.S. And the French government made sure of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, like I said, that's that's how it goes. Uh, but another topic that the Bless This Mess hosts had an issue with was that the car was ticketed in the parking lot for failure to pay at 8.23 p.m. And they thought, you know, why is that? Why do they have people in that parking lot? Well, it's a private lot. It's owned by a private company. And they have somebody checking the lot every hour on the hour throughout the day and night. So right. that the parking lot continues earning the money for everybody parking there. And Greg Harris is hella lucky that the lot was not like the one I used to park in for, for work. If you parked without paying, they booted your car. Oh, you did not get a ticket and then get another ticket and then get a boot. You got a boot. Because many days I came out to get in my car and heard people on the phone who could not believe that they got a boot and they'd never parked there before and never gotten a ticket before. And it's a private lot. They could do what they want. It's private property. So he's very lucky. I kind of, it's kind of disappointing to me because if, he had come out to find his car booted. This outcome of this case might have been much different because he would have had to have been seen by somebody when he left the building. He says, according to his timeline, according to his story, he left the building about 8.30 p.m. So mm-hmm. you got to wonder what he's doing in that hour, 59, that 59 minutes between 724 and 823 or 830 when he finally leaves. Um, at 1030 p.m., Chiquita's Gucci wallet was found in Gardier Lane. And by coincidence, divine providence, I'm not quite sure which. The woman who found the wallet had cut Chiquita's hair. So the woman knew her and was not going to take her money and use her credit cards. She was going to turn the wallet in because it shouldn't have been on Gardier Lane. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout the night and 
in the early morning hours, Greg makes multiple calls to Chiquita Tate's phone, which, you know, she had a cell phone. Um, he may have called the office phone, but, um, of course, none of them are answered, and more likely than not, he knew they wouldn't be. And uh-huh. then in the early morning hours, he called Danita, her sister, who worked for her, uh, who may have been working for her at the time, or it may have been one of the times when Danita walked away or Chiquita fired her because they had, you know, they were sisters, so they had the, you know, the typical contentious relationship. They could get along. They loved each other. They worked together. They were at each other's throats. Chiquita would fire Danita about once a week, and then a couple of days later, mm-hmm. Chiquita would call Danita, and say, and they'd talk, and then Chiquita would say, well, see you tomorrow. And so Danita would have her job back. Um, now, one of the people that Greg didn't call during this time was Lessie, the secretary, who had a key to the office and who could have come to the office to check on things. And at some point in his narrative, he talks about going to the office and it's dark outside, but the office lights are still on. Mm-hmm. Um, he also claims that he woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and was immediately angry because Chiquita hadn't come home and he knew she was out drinking and cheating on him. Oh, dear Lord. And that's another, that's another little detail of his that gives him away. Okay. Um, About 5.30 AM, he leaves the house in Baker and goes down to Baton Rouge and gets to the office building, sees the lights on, calls 911, horribly worried about his wife. Police respond, they come in, and, of course, they go up into the office, and they find, according to the DA and one of the detectives, one of the worst scenes they've ever found, one of the worst crime scenes they've ever found. Um, It appeared that Chiquita had been attacked while she was holding a law book. She Uh had multiple stab wounds. She had multiple incised wounds. Um, she had defensive wounds, and she had blunt trauma injuries. So um, there had question. obviously been a life or death fight in that office. Right. My first, my first uh, question on this would be: Why are we assuming she was holding a book? And the reason why I asked that: Did they like find her holding the book still? Or the, there was a book found near one of her hands where she fell. Mm-hmm. And the position of the book, and I've seen a picture of it, and the position of the book looks like it literally fell out of her hand. Okay. Now, my next question is, you know, obviously she was probably, you know, a little bit outmatched, but why the hell didn't she swing the damn book? And if she did swing the damn book, I mean, couldn't we solve this by checking and seeing if Harris's nose is broke or something? Shit. Well... Probably more likely than not, the attack probably started from behind, and the book, so the book went out the hand. Collide immediately. Okay. Before, right. And she did have blunt trauma injuries, so she probably had, he probably subdued her to a degree. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And there, she, I mean, she did have defensive wounds, so she did try to, you know, defend herself. There was a fight in the office. There was blood everywhere. There was blood on the walls, blood on the ceiling. I mean, it was it was a horrible scene. Um, okay. Some of the evidence that they found, they found some hairs in the open palm of Chiquita's hand. And um, the detectives pretty much came to the conclusion that those were planted to try to misdirect the investigation fairly early on because the hairs were not clutched as though she had pulled them out of somebody's head. There were no roots attached, which meant that they couldn't get DNA. And the hairs were not entangled in Chiquita's fingers. It's like okay. the hair was yeah, just, the hairs sense. were just laying across the palm of the hand. Right. Um, okay. okay. Further examination found the hairs had been cut, not pulled. Mm-hmm. And the hairs were from multiple different people. And so huh. the conclusion was that they were probably from a wig. Okay. Then you have um, Chiquita's wallet, which is found in a bad part of town, but luckily turned in by by the person who found it. And the fact that Chiquita was wearing a diamond engagement ring, a wedding ring, diamond earrings, a very high-end watch. Um, she There were electronics in the office. There was TV, a VCR. Uh, or a DVD player. Um, uh, the only thing missing from the office was the wallet. Right. So okay. robbery wasn't a motive. And in that right. type of close case with multiple stab wounds, there that generally signifies a lot of anger at the victim and a relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. Okay. Most of the time. Um, then there was a life insurance policy. Um, and at some point, I'm not sure how long it took, but eventually a tip was called in, in Mm. which a female caller claimed to have overheard a confession of someone who killed Chiquita because Chiquita had been involved in a lesbian love triangle. Well, dang, that escalated quickly. Yeah. Um, And then there were Harris's statements. When he talked to police, of course, he painted the, you know, puppies and rainbows and unicorn version of their marriage, which wasn't true. It was a troubled marriage. And it was troubled before it even began. Uh, And I would suggest, you know, that the the whole relationship was troubled because Chiquita was not the type of personality to exist peacefully with an abusive personality like Greg Harris. Mm-hmm. Okay. She was not going to take his shit. Right. Absolutely not. She was not going to try and keep him happy. No. Um, Her job in this world was not to uh, make the man happy. Right. Exactly. And And she didn't need him. That's the thing, and I, and I think that's the difference between 
Chiquita and his prior girlfriends as well. She did not need him. These other two girlfriends may have needed him, although I suspect that they were probably the main breadwinners in the relationship as well. I was about to say, I wouldn't argue that because, like you said, his whole relationship uh, career has been him mooching off of these girls. So I wouldn't argue that. Well, like, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know that that is the case with all of his relationships. Maybe she um, but he he painted himself as being more he painted himself as being more successful than he was. Right, and maybe maybe okay. maybe she flaunted that she didn't need him a little bit more in his face than he would have liked. And maybe Probably that's the separation. So. Yeah. Um, he also lied about the domestic violence incident. He denied it ever happened. And then when confronted with the fact that not only was he charged, but he had a warrant because uh, he failed to appear, uh, then he said, oh, well, well, we had both moved forward. We moved beyond that. We wanted to work everything out. And uh, he lied about her having the apartment. Um, he also lied to a degree about some of his activities on the 19th. He didn't admit to going to Gardier Lane until he was told that they had video of him on Gardier Lane. And then he claimed he went there to buy steroids. Mm-hmm. But his dealer refuted that story. Okay. So um, he was he was arrested on the warrant and held on the warrant. Um, they had like they they could hold him for like forty five days. Uh, mm-hmm. At some point during this period of time, they also mm-hmm. found the identity of the mystery caller, and it turns out that the mystery caller was Greg Harris's sister, the lesbian who lives in the Dallas area. No. Uh, they checked out the lesbian love triangle angle. They went to Leslie Hoofkin Huff, Huff, and, and she told them that uh, Chiquita did have a lesbian couple as clients. She was helping them adopt a child or had helped them adopt a child. Uh, mm. They loved her. Everything had gone well with the case. Um, they interviewed the women. Neither of the women had hair consistent with the hair found in Chiquita's hand. Um, and neither okay. of the women, both of them, had alibis for the 19th and 20th. So, it, you, you know, that truth. it wasn't them. Um, the but I no, the mystery... Thought, I just thought that he had something to do with the phone call. That's why I asked if she was the Greg did. Tipster. Greg did have something to do... Greg did have something to do with the phone call. Uh, the okay. caller was his sister... And the claim was that his sister called because her dad told her about this lesbian love triangle. But part of the call was that the caller claimed to have overheard a woman confessing to having killed Chiquita in a local Chili's. Right. So... Essentially, the Harris family, Greg himself, his sister, and perhaps his father, 
they're trying to implicate innocent people on based on a lie. Because the daddy didn't hear a confession. The sister didn't hear a confession. Greg Harris didn't hear a confession. So, um, so that was, that looks really bad for Greg. And then the coup de grace was the DNA. They towed and got a warrant and searched Greg's car and found a pair of sunglasses under one of the seats with blood that matched Chiquita's DNA. Okay. Did he have and it was like one in seven hundred something billion. So Did he have it was it was a no, not okay. to my knowledge. Cool. I and and you know and and in reality, when you look at it. His father and his sister have never explained why they would make up this false lesbian love triangle lead. Oh, true. I mean, to police. I guess you'll do anything to save family, or at least some people will, but yeah. Yeah. And then at the house, at the house, they found uh, a mixture of blood on a bleach bottle. Uh, in the kitchen near the microwave, and that was a mixture of Chiquita's and Harris's DNA. Okay. And then there was other uh, material found on Harris's clothing that I think was presumptive positive for blood, but I don't have any information about whether any of that yielded DNA for comparison mm-hmm. or not. Um, and then finally, DNA from Chiquita's fingernails was a mixture of two male contributors, and Harris could not be excluded as the major contributor in that mixture. So with the with all the circumstantial evidence and then the DNA, uh, Greg Harris was indicted for second-degree murder. Okay. Um, at some point, his bail was reduced, and so he was able to be released. I suspect that um, that life insurance money came in handy. It came through because you know he was he, and I. But I think also, I say that, but I think also his family, you know, his father and his siblings who owned property put up property for him to bond him out. So, and say, he had his property in Baker. The, the life insurance doesn't necessarily make sense because they're not going to pay a life insurance claim if there's murder suspected, correct? It, it, well, if you get the claim in quickly enough and you're not yet indicted or, or charged, there is a chance. Now, there's also a possibility there was a recorded call between Danita, Chiquita's sister, and Greg, in which Greg is apparently going to sign over the life insurance money to Chiquita's family members because he doesn't want it. Um, mm-hmm. But there's, 
it, it's like he doesn't really have the paperwork. Um, the paperwork was allegedly seized by police. There's there's some kind of song and dance um, that so he was probably never really going to give. I don't know. Right. I, like I said, if he got the claim in quickly enough, although he was taken into custody on the DV warrant, he, if he wasn't charged, the life insurance company may not have. And again, you got to wonder, was there a contestability period? True. Um, but the life insurance apparently paid out to somebody because I didn't find anything civilly uh, challenging the life insurance company in connection with the policy. Uh, but I will okay. look a little bit better or a little bit harder for that later. Sometimes I think of avenues to research mm-hmm. on show day. Right. I understand. So. Uh, so then in March of 2011, just as he's about to go on trial, Greg Harris's attorneys, and he was represented by privately hired attorneys. Mm-hmm. So somebody had some money somewhere. Um, he filed that his attorneys filed a motion to recuse all the judges in the 19th Judicial District because. There were two recorded phone calls with Danita Tate-Joseph, Chiquita's sister, uh, in which Danita claimed that Chiquita had some kind of dirt on two judges but didn't identify the judges, claimed that Chiquita had been waiting for charges against one of their brothers to be resolved before using that dirt and claiming that Chiquita was tired of criminal defense work and was trying to get out of criminal defense work. Uh, those phone calls do not mention the Duharts or the Duhart case in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really entirely clear that the call is with Danita. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, Danita's talking about the DA, Hilar Moore, who was the East Baton Rouge DA. Um okay. As somehow, but there's also the potential that Danita was trying to lull Harris into a false sense of security, mm-hmm. and so was playing along with his um, innocent. They're framing me to try to get him to make some admission or slip up and say something incriminating. Um, so that motion, I don't know that it was ever even ruled on because it was filed so close to his trial. Um, but there was never a hearing and there's never been any testimony from Danita Tate Joseph, either at his trial or since then that would, you know, uh, corroborate or, or adopt any of the statements that she made in this this phone conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the case went to trial, and basically the prosecution had Greg's money problem, the MO, which was stabbing, and a fight, which was more consistent between a husband and wife with a troubled marriage. 
they had the right. wallet and where it was found and placing Greg there um, by his own admission, even though he doesn't admit that he went there to throw the wallet. Um, right. and, but no other evidence of a robbery in the office. And there, you've got the fact the building was locked down tight. Um, then they had the blood on the sunglasses in the vehicle and the blood on the bleach bottle in the house. Um, again, the fact that he's the last person to see her alive and the history of, of domestic violence, not only with Chiquita, but with two prior girlfriends, uh, okay. with similar allegations and accusations made against the girlfriends that he made against Chiquita. You're cheating on me, uh-huh. you're nasty, you're horrible, etc. They also had the 911 call that Shakita made during the uh, domestic violence incident prior to their wedding. And they also had found a tape in a closet in the house of a discussion between Shakita and, and Harris regarding dissolution of their marriage and community property in which Harris made some somewhat threatening allusions uh, on that tape. I'm not sure that the tape ever made it into the trial, but it certainly was part of the investigation and part of the, part of the evidence against Greg Harris as a whole. Um, Harris's defense was pretty much a, some other dude did it. And they, you know, mentioned the fact a few times at trial that Chiquita's criminal clients were the scum of the earth. Right. Uh, the Duhart's names were also mentioned, although I don't think that they actually uh, named Denard, who was the only one at, who wasn't in jail at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had no cohesive theory as to why the Duharts would want to kill Chiquita. True. Um, and uh, the case went to the jurors. The jury apparently could not find su- second-degree murder, but they did find him guilty of manslaughter, which in Louisiana okay. is 40-year, maximum sentence is 40 years. Okay. And that's what Greg Harris got, maximum sentence of 40 years with no possibility of parole or reduction of his sentence. So the judge wanted him to serve every day of that 40 years. Um, he filed a motion to modify his sentence, which was denied. And then the case went to direct appeal, and he hired separate new counsel to handle the direct appeal. So Greg Harris was not represented by a public defender. Um, I believe, however, that while the appellate counsel were retained by his family and friends, appellate counsel was able to get him pro bono, um, uh, pauper status so that he wouldn't Uh have to pay the appellate fees filing fees, et cetera, uh, in connection with his direct appeal. You know, could get free transcripts, trial transcripts, et cetera. Right. Uh, 
the challenges on direct appeal were more um, along the lines of sufficiency of the evidence. Basically, the, they attacked the verdict of manslaughter, saying that the jury found him guilty of manslaughter and they didn't have sufficient evidence of that. And they obviously didn't have sufficient evidence of secondary murder. They would have found him guilty of that. Uh, but the right. court examined the evidence and found that actually the evidence of second-degree murder was there and was sufficient. And the jurors may have simply uh, – they, they may have felt that it is possible an alternative to second-degree murder is that they – he came down there to bring her food. They got into an argument – and it escalated and, you know, spur of the moment, he ended up killing her. That he didn't plan it or premeditate it or intend it. It just happened. And, you know, generally, that's an alternative which exonerates him for second-degree murder, but not manslaughter. Um, uh-huh. And then he complained regarding the omission of the prior uh, domestic violence incidents. However, the appellate court found that those were those were um, used to establish identity, pattern, system, and motive. And identity was a material issue. Greg Harris was not pleading uh, not guilty and claiming sudden heat of passion. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, he was pleading absolutely not guilty, didn't do it. So the domestic violence incidents established the relationship between him and Chiquita that, you know, suggests that he very well could have done it or that proved right. on a reasonable doubt that he did do it. Uh, even though the jurors may have believed it was after a, a just an altercation or a fight or an argument. Uh, then the uh, he complained about the admission of Chiquita's 911 call, uh, but his attorneys failed to preserve a Crawford issue on that. They didn't object to it and raise Crawford, which had already been decided at that time. Right. And so they didn't give the trial court an opportunity to examine it under the Crawford factors. And so if you don't give the trial court an opportunity to fix the problem, then when you file your direct appeal, you're not going to be able to pursue that avenue. Uh, and the grounds that he argued, it wasn't hearsay. It, it uh, Even though the Crawford factors, it, it met the Crawford factors. She was being questioned and giving information right after the incident occurred, uh, giving law enforcement information about the about the situation they were going to be walking into. Um, and then he also appealed uh, the excessive sentence, uh, but the court found, again, that that was within the statute and that the trial court considered everything it had to consider in rendering the sentence. And he claimed that the the verdict, the guilty verdict, was not the result of a unanimous jury. Now, as you know, in Louisiana, 
we allowed felony convictions with a non-unanimous jury for many years. And at the time Greg Harris's appeal was decided, um, that was still the, that was still law in Louisiana. There's a discrepancy, however, apparently the minutes from the court polling of the jury appear to be a unanimous verdict. But in the court transcript, there is one juror who voted not guilty. Um, So there's a discrepancy and that raises an issue potentially. Now, since Ramos he Greg Harris may at some point raise this as an issue. However, because it's not clear cut, it may be difficult for him to actually prove that the jury was not unanimous. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going to play out in the future. And I am next season we're going to look at Ramos which is the case the Louisiana Supreme Court found that non-unanimous juries in Louisiana and Oregon were not cool. So, um, but I wanted to wait a little time after Ramos was decided to kind of see how it would play out with other cases. Right. And, um, so the the court basically found that there was no error with a non-unanimous verdict. Again, we'll have to see how that comes out. Um, so the next avenue was uh, state post-conviction. Right. And uh, Harris filed a state post-conviction claim on in May of 2015. He sought recusal of all of the 19th Judicial District Court judges in July of 2015. And, uh, well, because he's going back on that claim that um, Danita Tate said that Chiquita had dirt on two judges, but doesn't name the judges. And he also claims that because Chiquita was a well-known lawyer in that judicial district that he couldn't get a fair trial with any of the judges in that district. Uh, That's kind of a conclusory allegation. Uh, Judge White recused herself, um, and then he amended his petition in August of 2015, and he raised additional arguments regarding recusal. One of the things is that Chiquita had been a clerk for Judge White, who was the trial court judge, or the criminal trial judge. However, the the way the office worked, Judge White would see the clerks for weeks on end. They would basically come in, do their work, and leave, you know, pleadings and things for her to sign on her desk with memos about, you know, about them. So there was very little personal contact between Judge White and and 
any of her law clerks. Um, she didn't attend Chiquita's law school graduation. She didn't attend her wedding. Uh, she didn't attend her funeral. While Chiquita had represented an organization of which the judge was a member, the judge did not have a personal uh relationship or a client attorney client relationship with Chiquita. Now, one of the problems with the allegations about Judge White's fitness to serve as a trial judge, Judge White disclosed the fact that Chiquita had clerked for her and disclosed the circumstances mm, okay. of that. And Harris's attorneys elected not to request her recusal. Judge White was not the mentor that Judge Johnson had been. So Chiquita didn't have the close personal relationship with Judge White that she had had with Judge Johnson. Um, But uh, he raised a lot of issues. He raised the recusal issue and ineffective assistance of his trial counsel for failing to request that Judge White recuse. He raised... um, claims regarding the admission of the domestic violence claims and ineffective assistance because the uh, his counsel did not raise Crawford or object or basically argue at the hearing that the information was not admissible successfully. Sure. Uh, he raised an ineffective assistance of counsel issue related to the failure of his trial counsel to request a change of venue and alleged jury bias. He alleged uh, ineffective assistance for failure to move for a mistrial after a non-unanimous verdict, but it's not even clear that it's a non-unanimous verdict. And then he raised actual innocence. He claims to have three new witnesses and or letters naming someone else uh, he claims that there are statements by Danita and a woman by the name of Teronda Green, who was the secretary to Judge Johnson, that said others had an interest in killing Tate. But he doesn't give any information about these witnesses. He doesn't say who they are. He doesn't say what they have to say. He doesn't append or attach the letters as exhibits to see what they say and and who they say did it. And he doesn't produce anything than, you know, this others had an interest in killing Tate as the statements from Danita and Teronda Green. Um, I think that his attorneys thought if he was vague enough, they'd get a hearing. But sometimes in order to get a hearing, you have to show the court that there are some meat on the bones. You know, you have to show the court that the information is good and and could be reliable and credible. And then he also complained that he was deprived of his right to testify. Um, the commissioner, after considering the petitions and the trial records, uh, filed a recommendation And um, hang on a second, because I have to. I I didn't put it in my outline because it was just too much 
to try to put it into my outline. <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> but I just did not feel like typing all this stuff up because there was a lot and I was trying to do um, a little bit more detail on this one because we only have state post-conviction. Um, so on February 17, 2016, the commissioner uh, filed his recommendation for the out for you know how it should be handled. Um, the commissioner found that Judge White disclosed her relationship with Tate at the bond hearing at a bond hearing. Uh, that White went weeks without seeing her law clerk. She didn't attend Shakita's graduation, wedding, or funeral. Um, that Harris's attorneys did not seek White's recusal at that time, and that Harris was mischaracterizing the relationship as far as his allegations about an attorney-client relationship, he was mischaracterizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they all, the judge also found that the issue was not raised on direct appeal and that Harris had presented no evidence that Judge White was biased or that any of Judge White's rulings demonstrated a bias against him. Um, and a lot of it's it's very common in a lot of post conviction work, especially in lay people. Basically, they think if you were convicted, if hearsay evidence, if past crime evidence, if that type of evidence was admitted against you, the judge had to be biased. When okay. the reality is, no, the judge. The judge follows the law, calls the balls and strikes, and, you know, and if the judge on direct appeal, if the appellate court doesn't find the judge did something wrong on direct appeal, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree, you know. Um, so then he were, so he recommended on that issue that relief be denied and the issue that the claim didn't have any merit and be dismissed. Um, again, as far as the ineffective assistance of counsel, um, they, the commissioner found that White did disclose the relationship, that the relationship did not meet the requirements of the Code of Criminal Procedure Article 671A, which set forth the parameters of a relationship that requires a judge to recuse. Okay. Or that serve as grounds for a judge's recusal. And that the defense's decision to consent to Judge White presiding over the case was a a rational, reasonable one. Uh So that was dismissed. Uh, Then the commissioner found, as on direct appeal, that the Defense failed to preserve a Crawford hearsay objection or violation uh, to the testimony, and the 911 recording was non-testimonial. Okay. So they he recommended that that issue be dismissed. And okay. then um, on the next issue, uh, basically that was the. Um, juror bias and uh, change of venue allegations. 
that his opinion, petitioner's opinion is self-serving, that the statements in support of his argument are conclusory, and that he has not shown either error or prejudice by his attorney's failure to request a change of venue. Because remember, ineffective assistance of counsel is a, a really a two-part, sometimes even a three-part test. First, you have to show that there was error, that prejudiced your defense, and that the outcome of your trial would have been different. Mm-hmm. And in the juror bias or, or change of venue allegation, he showed none of that. That's just basically his saying, well, my, you know, my, my wife was a prominent attorney and everybody in Baton Rouge heard about this case and it was all over the news and there was a lot of media coverage and I could not get a fair trial. You know, well, you didn't, you didn't meet any of the criteria to show that that was really an issue. Um, Fair enough. And, you know, and, and the fact that he was out on bond for the two years almost between the murder and his trial, um, you know, but, and, and he was re- represented. I think if the attorney had thought he had a chance, but you have to have, in order to get a change of venue, you have to show that the the venue is biased. Right, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you have to be, to be fair. This isn't a case that is, this isn't OJ. This isn't getting intense media scrutiny, I don't believe. So I don't know that you can necessarily say that the whole damn, the whole damn town is, and area is mm-hmm. ruined because of this situation. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is the the fact that his jurors didn't convict him of second-degree murder. Mm-hmm. They actually gave him the benefit of the doubt and thought, well, maybe this was an argument that went too far. That actually demonstrates a lack of bias. Right. Um, I mean, the fact that he got one, the fact that he got one juror to freaking say that he was not guilty potentially, assuming that, you know, that's correct. Potentially, that's correct. But, I, you know, I can I can attest that that your court reporters don't always get it right. Right. So there's a there's a possibility the court reporter heard not guilty when that juror said guilty. Right, absolutely. But I'm saying if one of them really did say not guilty, then Mm -hmm. that just blows his bias out of the fucking water. Uh, And then on the non-unanimous jury issue, um, of course, the First Circuit at that point had ruled that non-unanimous verdicts are not unconstitutional nothing wrong with them. They don't violate anything. Um, the commissioner found the attorney's performance were, was not deficient for basically failing to take an action that was not going to get them anywhere mm-hmm. uh, in, in requesting a mistrial. And right. um, that there is a question as to whether the verdict was non-unanimous. 
uh, Harris didn't present any evidence that it was. Okay. The fact that the appellate court on direct appeal talks about a a discrepancy between the transcript and the minutes. That's where that information comes from. So Harris didn't even admit that evidence. So, I mean, essentially they handed it to him and he's like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll use it. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's, it's very, it's very possible that the whole non-unanimous argument is going to, because basically all they have to do is if one of the jurors, the juror in the transcript that's identified as the one saying not guilty, they just have mm-hmm. to track that juror down and ask that juror, did you vote not right. guilty or did you vote guilty? Because the minutes are taken down by a clerk. And the transcript is prepared by the court reporter. So either one could have heard a juror incorrectly. Um, and uh, the commissioner recommended dismissal or found that the factual innocence claims raised by Harris had no merit because the sole ground for factual innocence in Louisiana is DNA testing. And while Harris alleges DNA testing would prove him innocent, he never asked for DNA testing. Right. And no DNA testing had ever been done that actually proved him innocent. Uh, And you have to remember, he was not excluded as a major contributor in that unknown DNA profile or in that mixed DNA profile from the fingernail. I mean, any DNA that they had already done, he wasn't, wasn't able to vindicate him. Correct. What they're arguing is they're, they're kind of like ignore the fact that he's not excluded as a major contributor, but look at the fact that it's a mixture of two male profiles. And I say DNA testing, if it's done, is going to implicate Denard, Denard, Duhart. Uh, but sure. we'll talk about Denard Duhart in a minute. Um, so his al- none of his allegations are based on DNA. It's based on what DNA might show if testing's ever done. Um, and again, he hadn't. Re- he's never requested DNA testing. And then the judge, kind of overall, the commissioner overall, found that he didn't offer any evidence or affidavits in support of his claims that he was denied his right to testify. He didn't offer an affidavit from himself saying, I wanted to testify, and my attorney said, I'll quit if you do. He didn't offer any affidavits or testimony from his attorney that say, yeah, he really wanted to testify, but look, there was too much dirty laundry that I didn't want him getting hit with and so I told mm-hmm. him even though you really want to you can't and that I quit if right. you did because uh, it has to rise to that level um, and in Louisiana they don't do or they didn't do at that time the allocution similar to what they did with uh, Dahlia DiBolito where the judge actually out, outside the presence of the jury talked to her and had her say, 
I elect not to testify on the record. So, but he offered no evidence that he wanted to testify and that, you know, he was prevented from doing so by his attorney or that his attorney failed to, you know, give him the pros and cons to make that decision. His attorney just declared that he couldn't do it, couldn't testify. Mm-hmm. Um, Harris filed a traverse, which is basically a disagreement with the commissioner's recommendations. Um, and that's when he made the argument that unknown, that there was unknown DNA, male DNA under Chiquita's fingernails. Well, yeah, there's a mixture, but he's not excluded as a major contributor to that mixture. So <laughs> the minor contributor is the unknown male. Um, right. He doesn't have DNA from Denard to compare to DNA under the fingernails. And absent a sample from Denard, he's really not going to get anywhere unless they do YSTR and Denard, Denaco, and Darius are all sons of the same father to do YSTR testing. Um, I kind of hope that he will request and get some kind of DNA testing at some point in time because I think today's methods that mixture might bear a little bit more information than it did. But again, and answer a few more questions. However, again, if there's no reference sample from Denard Duhart, then we're never going to know. Okay. Um, But what DNA might prove kind of like Rodney Reed, what DNA might prove is vastly different from what DNA has already proven. And what, and this is a, a, a similar, not quite as blatant as Rodney Reed, but similar to Rodney Reed, they're ignoring the DNA that has already proven and connected Greg Harris to this murder. And they're trying to Say, but this other DNA, if it's tested, will prove I didn't do it. And then his argument on judge the issues related to recusal of Judge White are basically that she did recuse herself from the post-conviction claims. Well, of course she did recuse herself from the post-conviction claims because you're alleging she should have recused herself from the trial to begin with. Um, second she's recused that she's recused herself from other cases has no bearing on this case. And then he re-argued some of the other points that he made in his things, uh, in his, you know, in his, uh, applications, uh, in, on June, um, April 21st, 2016, the judge who was a new judge, denied his request for a hearing, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a tactical error on the part of his post-conviction counsel. And gee, it's such a shame that you're not entitled to uh, effective counsel (laughs) post-conviction because his post-conviction counsel definitely made a technical blunder or a tactical blunder. They should have provided more information about what these alleged actual innocence witnesses 
had, and that might have gotten him a hearing. But it also would have given the state fuel to refute. So there are, you know, pros and cons. And denied him uh, post-conviction relief in state court. Now, this is where it gets weird. On June 10th, 2016, a notice of appeal was filed um, requesting appellate review. Nothing has happened since then. The clerk, the court has never signed. The judge has never signed the order. The record has ne- never been designated. The record has never been lodged at the First Circuit Court of Appeal. Yeah. So as of February 8, 2021, four years and change later, this post-conviction claim has not been appealed. There is a question under those circumstances as to whether it could be considered pending so as to interrupt the deadlines for federal habeas. And as far as I can tell, there is no federal habeas claim. I think what may have happened is that the attorney who was representing him in post-conviction decided not to represent him any longer and his family can no longer afford to hire counsel. Ah, okay. So now I want to talk, I want to wrap it up um, as to... Uh, this alternate suspect of Denard Duhart. Denard died in 2013. He is mm-hmm. not here to defend himself against Greg Harris's accusations. Um, this is my speculation. It's my personal opinion. Y'all can agree with me or y'all can disagree. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that Denard Duhart had the motive or opportunity to have murdered Chiquita Tate on February 19th or February 20th, 2009. And this is why. Right. First of all, the building was locked up tight. Could not have accessed the building without a call to yeah. Chiquita and Chiquita coming and letting him in. Right. As far as I can tell, the police thoroughly investigated the Duhart angle and found nothing to connect Chiquita and the Duharts in any way, shape, or form to Chiquita's murder. Again, Darius and Danaco were in, in jail awaiting trial on the murder uh-huh. charge. And I think it was like aggravated kidnapping, first-degree murder. Um. Also, in that case, witnesses were killed somehow, some way, by somebody. But those witnesses were shot. So if someone wanted to help the Duharts out, maybe the case was not going the way they thought it should be, and they wanted a continuance to find new attorneys. Mm-hmm. Chiquita would have been shot. 
Okay, Shakita probably would have been shot leaving the office that night on her way to her Hummer in the parking lot. Right, um, not that multiple I, fucking death. There would not have been an up-close-and-personal struggle, life-and-death fight to the death in that office in which Shakita Tate had over 40 stab wounds and right. incised wounds and blunt trauma wound injuries, rather. Um so I don't think that, you know, Denard Duhart is the killer. Now, as far as the new witnesses, well, Harris doesn't identify them, and he doesn't provide the letters, so we don't know what those witnesses say. Right. Those letters could be from his sister, who claims to have heard a confession of Denard Duhart while she was eating dinner in Applebee's. And he said, yeah, I killed that attorney in a state national building. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it could be anybody. It could be, I believe the Duharts did it. I believe the Duharts wanted a, con- a continuance. What, what individuals not connected to the investigation feel or think or believe about the innocence of the convicted party or the guilt of other parties? is irrelevant. It's not evidence. It's not exculpatory evidence. Chiquita's entire family could stand behind Greg Harris and say he didn't do this. He couldn't have killed her. The evidence admitted at his trial says otherwise. And while they're, you know, free to believe what they want to believe... That doesn't change what was presented to his jury, which 12 or perhaps 11 believed he killed Chiquita Tate in a fit of rage or passion. Because that's essentially right. what manslaughter is. Um, again, and Greg Harris had, has never presented anything. In the, in the earlier conversation he had with Danita and that talked about the judge's information and Shakita not wanting to represent criminal defendants anymore and, and all these other things, the Duhart's names were never mentioned. And problems with the Duhart's cases were never mentioned. So there's no evidence in that conversation that would link the Duhart's. Um, that Danita and someone else, a, a secretary to Judge Johnson, say others had an interest in killing Tate doesn't say who those others were or what their interests were or why they right. would want to kill her. And they aren't, those aren't evidence. That, that, that's not evidence. That could be those people's opinions. It's like sure. when you think about it, the uh, 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 Pace and Campos, the women who Rodney Reed's cousin and um, investigator claimed uh, to have had knowledge, claim these women had knowledge of, of Stacey Stites murder and that it wasn't Rodney Reed, it was someone else. Um, you know, both of those women said that that was a lie and that they were discussing their opinions. And while they didn't believe Rodney Reed was the killer, they didn't have any firsthand information that proved he was. Would disprove it. Right. So, um, 
you know, again, what, what family members believe or think is not evidence, and it's not exculpatory evidence. And, you know, it's funny how the beliefs beliefs of family members who think the guy in prison is innocent are sacrosanct but the belief of family members who believe the guy in prison is guilty those family members have been lied to are blind are biased are stupid are part of of the problem uh, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I once yeah, had Western three supporters tell me the Moors and Byers and Hobbs were all idiots to think that Eccles and Baldwin and Miss Kelly were guilty. Well, I mean, let's be honest here. Byers isn't the smartest crayon in the box, but yeah. Right. But one, But, of course, once he believed that they were not guilty... Uh, you couldn't say a bad thing about him and his past and, and all the all the problems that made him suspect number one disappeared. So, um, so that is uh, right now, Greg Harris, as I said, is uh, he's in Angola. He's going to serve 40 years, looks like. Um, I don't know. I, I may reach out to his attorney. I kind of debated whether I should do that because I'm not really, I'm not going to give him a forum to claim that he's innocent. Right. Cause I don't think he is. Um, so I didn't reach out the, to the attorney, but I, I might reach out to the attorney and say, I'm just kind of curious. What's happening with this appeal? Because the First Circuit's got no record of it. Um, and it also would be interesting to find out from a um, a more experienced seasoned criminal attorney whether or not he could even pursue an appeal of that 2016 order after so much time has passed without perfecting that appeal. Right. So uh, we'll have to see. Uh, but I'll try and have a little bit of information on that for the uh, for follow the follow-up on uh, two weeks from tonight. Woo-woo, two weeks from tonight. <laughs> Oh, I'm, so, excited about uh, I'm excited about next. Week. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna look at Chiquita's uh, tort cases to see if I could figure out which one she won the big judgment in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, system where they uploaded document images came after Chiquita's untimely death and so Demise. Demise. I won't be able to um I won't be able to actually get any really great detail. 
about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. cases. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Well, I think that about covers it. Do you have any questions, any thoughts, any input? I mean, really, I think it comes down to this dude honestly got lucky to get what he got. I I mean, pure and simple. The dude's a bastard. Um, This is one that I don't think there's much controversy to. The only uh, controversy really is if that juror actually said not guilty. But other than that, I mean, there's not much here. It might. Right. I totally agree. And I totally, you know, and I, as I laid out my opinion on the Duharts, you know, I think if the if that were a viable scenario, I think Chiquita would have been shot, not stabbed. Right. She exactly. would have been shot I mean, leaving her office. Remote. And it, if she was attacked, if she was attacked in her office, it would have been made to really look like a robbery. And I think the things that really really show Greg Harris's guilt the most are the location where her wallet was found because he thought it would be found by a shady character who would get caught using credit cards and be blamed and tried for the murder. That was his plan. Uh, The hair planted in Chiquita's hand. That was to make people think the 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 perpetrator was a woman, right? Um, and then, of course, the sister giving the false lead lesbian story, yeah, the false statement about the lo- lesbian love triangle, and having heard a confession that somebody killed, you know, to the person killing Chiquita. Uh, I think all that is, and then the you know her only explanation to cops was. Well, that's what my dad told me. Right. But you didn't tell police, look, my dad was in Chili's, and this is what he says he heard. And, you know, his dad has been interviewed and his brother's been interviewed, and neither one of them addressed that either time I've seen them interviewed. Mm -hmm. Neither of them explained, and the sister doesn't get interviewed. But neither of them explains how or why the sister would contact police from Dallas. It's kind of funny how they tracked her down. She thought they couldn't track her down. Oh, my God. But somehow the police got a phone number, probably caller ID. And it works for cell phones now. Mm-hmm. Because the system at my former office, um, shows my cell phone number. Right. And uh, so they got the number and they were able to to identify the carrier and then identify the owner and then the police showed up in, in I think she was in, she was in the Dallas area. I think it was Garland, Texas, which is in the Dallas suburbs. Um, and when they showed up, on her doorstep to find out she's Greg Harris's sister. Those three, those three facts put the noose around Greg Harris's neck absent DNA evidence. 
The right. DNA is just the icing on the cake. Because exactly. an innocent person it's, doesn't do that. Yeah, I know. Like, he's going out of his way to make himself look guilty. And like I said, he's dumb as a I box just, of rocks. He thought all that was going to make him look innocent. Right. And I bet you if you interviewed him and asked him, he would say, well, I, I was, why would I do that? I was trying to get the police to do their job. I was trying to get the police to investigate the case. Like, well, yeah, they I did mean, a great job investigating. They found your sister. Let's be honest. What was, my first, honest. Question? What was my first it, question? If you want to try to get off and not be tried or not be looked at, why would you put, implicate yourself as the last person to see her alive? Like, Right. Yeah. And uh, if he had made up a phantom... Although I think that if he'd made up a phantom, it wouldn't have gotten him anywhere. But there was a lot of surveillance cameras in that area. But because of a storm, they were not working or they weren't covering the right locations. Okay. So, and they hadn't been repaired yet. So, but... uh, yeah, so that pretty much that wraps up Greg Harris. Like I said on the update, I'm going to try and find out a little bit more information about when Chiquita started practicing law based on her bar roll number, uh, a little bit more about the tort cases that she handled uh, during her career, and the status of Harris's appeal of his state post-conviction claim. Okay. Heck yeah. Dude, all like, right. if something, if this dude somehow magically defies all the odds and, you know, something happens, I definitely want to know about it. Well, I think that the only chance is if, you know, I have to look at the implications of Ramos on the non unanimous verdict issue. But the most that could happen is he might get a new trial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that he won't—he won't have his conviction vacated and a judge order that they they can't retry him. Right. Right. Because the the non-unanimous verdict issue is not one. It's not like a like a prosecutorial misconduct or you know, egregious Brady violations by the prosecutor, hiding evidence, et cetera. In fact, in this case, that's never been alleged. Right, right, right. right. Um, So it's not a case where there's any – basically the Supreme Court has found a a longstanding – law that was believed to be constitutional and even got the federal seal of approval for many decades. The current, well, not the current makeup of the court, the the pre-Amy Comey Barrett Mm -hmm. makeup decided that non-unanimous verdicts were not cool. Right, right. So, uh, but we'll look at we'll look at Ramos next season, and 
there are some cases. There's a case that we talked about, Cardell Hayes. That case might end up. Back in court? Being a, being affected by the non-unanimous verdict ruling in Ramos. Another thing that people have to understand, it's not automatic. It's not automatic. Um, it's an issue that Har- Cardell Hayes can raise in post-conviction. But it's not but one no that, you know, no the, the Ramos court says it's no longer cool. And that means that everybody convicted with a non-unanimous verdict in Oregon and Louisiana to the end of time, um, automatically the prison doors open and they get to leave. Um, it it means that they have to pursue. And I'm not I'm I don't know that the Supreme Court made it retroactive. So they may have said from this point forward. Non-unanimous verdicts are not acceptable. So we'll have to look at that next season. Okay. Okay. All right. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, we have, um, God, we filled up two hours quick. There we go. 90 seconds. There we go. 90 seconds. Yeah. And, of course, people, I think people have noticed we're not taking the break anymore. And we're not playing the music from the period, the time period, because we're not taking yeah. a break anymore because yeah. we don't really need to anymore. So um, if you if you like that format, let us know. If you don't like the format, let us know. Um, you know, please visit our Facebook page and feel free to leave comments. Yeah, give suggestions. us some feedback. Give us some feedback. If there are cases you want us to look at, you know, give us a – uh, uh, look, although to be honest, we're not the Innocence Project and we're not right. investigators. Right. We're not going to go out and investigate and exonerate somebody who's in prison. <laughs> right. Um, right. Uh, I've had a couple of I've had a couple of messages on the on the page, and I I feel really bad when I say that's not what we do. Um, we kind of report what information is there with an eye toward reporting everything, not just what you might read in the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, let's put a bow on her. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us on Tuesday, February 16, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 32, State of Tennessee versus Philip Ray Workman. We'll look at the August 5, 1981 armed robbery in Memphis, Tennessee that led to the death of Memphis PD Lieutenant Ronald Oliver. Workman was charged, convicted, and sentenced to death. We'll talk about his controversial execution in May 2007 due to claims of actual innocence raised in his state and federal post-conviction claims. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.